In 2007, the number one country song in America was by a guy named Rodney Atkins, and it was titled Watching You. It tells the story of a little boy who blurted out some profanity, and when his dad asked him, where did, in the world did you hear those words, uh, the little boy's response was the chorus of the song. He said, I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? Uh, I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. We got cowboy boots and camo pants that I mentioned was a country song. Yeah, we're just alike. Hey, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything you do, so I've been watching you. In some of the later verses, the father gets convicted. He prays for God's help to be a better example. And when the little boy says his bedtime prayers, his father is impressed. And he asks his little boy, he said, uh, where did you learn to pray like that? And the little boy says again, I've been watching you. Well, growing up, depending on your family dynamic, uh, the phrase, you are just like your father, was either a compliment or it was a critique. Uh, I've noticed in my own family, if one of my kids does something that I don't approve of, I tell their mother, that, that's your daughter, that's your son, right? And so for some of you growing up, uh, hopefully you are just like your father was and is a compliment in your house. There is no denying the influence that a father has in, in a home, and what they say is true. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn this morning to the book of Ephesians once again in chapter 5 for a message titled, When I Grow Up. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul is telling the believers in Ephesus, uh, he says, listen, when you grow up, I want you to be just like your father. Uh, he is a model. I want you to model that, and I want you to be just like him. Now, it's one thing to try and model your earthly father. It's quite another uh, to try and model your heavenly father. But that is exactly what we are challenged with at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5. And so we're going to look at a little longer section than we normally do. Uh, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 21 this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God. As dear children and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting uh, for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Uh, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And then in verse 15, see then uh, that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. 
One of the great challenges of preaching, and sometimes you'll uh, hear in conferences and workshops, is to challenge uh, teachers and preachers of the Word of God is to make the Bible relevant. But the fact of the matter is not uh, us trying to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. And so we have to teach and preach in such a way to present uh, its relevance. And so one of the realities in chapter 5 is he's telling us, hey, listen, this is incredibly relevant because this is all about your lifestyle. Uh, the word that he uses over and over in chapter 5 and, and earlier in chapters 4 as well is the word walk. And he's not talking about a literal walk. He's not talking about putting one foot in front of the other. He's describing your walk as a consistent uh, lifestyle. And so he's saying, listen, your lifestyle, if your message is going to be relevant, then your lifestyle has to match up. And this is what that looks like. And so even though Paul's writing this to the believers there in Ephesus, you know, a long time ago, it is still wise counsel for us. That it is still as relevant as it was when Paul was writing there to Ephesus. And so before we get down to what it looks like, a lifestyle of imitating our father, uh, I want you to note very quickly that when he tells them in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, these words, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Uh, I want you to notice this. this. This is in the form of a command. Uh, th this is not a suggestion. Uh, this is not a prayer request. And so there are some great mysteries in the Christian life. There are some things uh, we're going to start a series off all the way in January, planning a little bit for next year on the will of God. And for a lot of people, finding God's will can be a mysterious thing. But let me give you some good news this morning. There are some things in Scripture you don't have to wonder, you don't have to pray, you don't have to seek godly counsel. You just have to do them. And anytime there's a command, you don't have to wonder, what should I do? You just do exactly as it says. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, he is offering this in the form of a command. But very often in our Christian lives, we have things that are commanded that we end up praying about. For example, we've got some baptisms coming up again. We've got several folks already signed up. Lots of folks. I run into lots of people in the baptism conversation who are still praying about something God commanded a long time ago. This is, this is one of those things in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, in the original language, it's an imperative. You say, what's an imperative? Uh, it's not optional. Not, not optional at all. And so what he's commanding him to do here is to be a uh, model, their father, imitators of God. The Greek word translated imitator in verse 1 is the word from which we get our English word, mine. Now, raise your hand if you acknowledge this morning that minds are creepy. Would you just acknowledge that this morning? Yeah, so if some of you, that's your side gig, uh, you, need to, you need to get right with God, all right? And so what does a mind do? A mind uh, is a person who expresses themselves in such an exaggerated way that even though they don't speak, no one misses what their message is. That's what he's saying here in the original language. He said, listen, your walk, your lifestyle should be so obvious that even if words don't come out of your mouth, people understand the consistent message you are displaying. And so then he begins to walk him through until now. This is a we walk through a long section of scripture, but listen, it's incredibly easy because he tells them, I want you to walk this way, I want you to walk this way, I want you to walk this way. Three different times in verse 1 through 21. And so uh, when he talks about being imitators of God, what exactly does that look like? What, what are the actions that I'm consistently expressing in such a way that even if I don't have a conversation with someone, they know exactly the message that I'm trying to live out, right? So he gives us three things here in these verses. Number one, he says we imitate God, first off, with a lifestyle of biblical love. Biblical love. 
Uh, back in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul made the transition from teaching doctrinal truth to teaching practical truth. And so he uses that word walk to describe, listen, practically speaking, uh, that this is what your life should look like. These are the things that, that when people observe you and are around you, these are the things they would describe as consistent uh, with your character. And so the reason he uses the word walk to describe lifestyle is this. These are not random occurrences. Uh, th these are not attributes and character qualities that, that when I'm in a good mood or when things are going well or when you respond correctly to me, then I'm going to love you in return. He says, no, no, no. These are not occasional occurrences. Uh, these are a consistent lifestyle. For example, let me give you an illustration the difference. I, one time, I ate egg salad. Now listen, that was an event. And it was a traumatic event, I want to say that. But it was not a lifestyle for me. You know why? Because nothing that smells that bad is of God. Amen? And so eating egg salad is not a lifestyle for me. It was a traumatic event. There was no consistency. I ate it once. I repented. I've never touched it again. So what's he saying here? He says, listen, these are not things that happen every now and then. These are not things that, that when you're, you know, you're just every, all the stars are lined and everyone around you behaves as you desire them to be. Then you love them in return. He says, no, no, this is a lifestyle. If you're going to be an imitator of your father. Listen, the Bible is so strong on biblical love. And we'll define it here in just a minute. Uh, listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And listen to this. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That is black ink on white paper. It doesn't get any clear on that and so he begins to describe what this love looks like and he gives a little comparison a little contrast here uh, in verses two and three to help you understand the difference between biblical love and uh, the opposite of what biblical love is and so look at verse two what he says here he says as and walk in love as christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to god for a sweet smelling aroma and then he goes on and begins to describe the opposite of love, which, which is uh, selfishness. And so here's, here's as simple as I can make this. Love is selfless, and lust is selfish. Love is other-centered, and lust is self-centered. That's what he describes there uh, in verse 2. And so if you want to understand what love is, then according to verse 2, and according to the example set forth by Jesus Christ, the one way we would describe ourselves is that phrase in verse 2, or describe love, is he gave himself for us. And so from God's perspective, and when I use the word a biblical love as my lifestyle, listen, then what I'm saying here is love is not an emotion. Now there are emotions attached to it, very strong emotions. We're not denying that God has wired us up that way. But at the end of the day, from a biblical perspective, love is defined as the decision to self-sacrifice on someone else's behalf. You say, where do you get that from? From the life of Jesus Christ. From the very definition in verse 2 when it says he gave himself up for us. And we won't go too deep into that because we're going to get that here in a, just a little bit in chapter 5 the next couple of weeks. But over and over the Bible says if I'm going to be an imitator of God, then I'm modeling the love of Christ, which is consistently choosing self-sacrifice instead of self or selfishness over and over. Now listen, we're not talking about destroying yourself or enabling someone else or becoming a doormat but at the end of the day there is a built-in consistent preference to defer to the needs of people that i love you say what's the the opposite of that it's to be unloving right no no, no. when he defines the opposite of biblical love he says it's not a lack of love it's loving yourself 
It, it's, it's selfishness is the opposite. It's I want this and I'm consumed with this. The Bible word for that is lust. Look at verse 3. What's he say? But fornication, he begins to describe lust in, the, lust in the sexual context. He says, but fornication and all uncleanness. And he moves over and says, but, but lust is so much more than that. Or covetousness, what is that? That's a, that's a Bible word where I'm consumed with what you have to the point where I have to have it. And I don't care if I hurt you. I'm not willing to self-sacrifice on your behalf because I have to have it. And so he begins, he describes it the opposite of love, which is selfishness. He said, let it not even be named among you, because this is uh, named among you as is fitting for saints. Uh, the New King James, which is what I preach from, uses the word fornication and uncleanness. And so uh, let me help you. I think a, a different translation may give a little clarity to this. Here's what it says in the New Living Translation, verse 3. Let there be no sexual morality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. And so he lists three things there in, that, in verse 3 that are the opposite of love. And so in verse 2, he defines love. He says, listen, if you're going to be an imitator of your father, which is a command, verse 1, the one of the identifying characteristics is that you self-sacrifice on other people's behalf, verse 2. And the opposite of that is, is, is not unloving. The opposite of that is selfishness. You say, what's that look like? He tells you right in verse 3. Three things. Immorality, impurity, and greed. You see, the underlying Greek word for immorality is the word porneia, which we get the English word of pornography. And so it refers to all kinds of sexual misconduct outside the boundaries of marriage. One writer referred to it this way in defining pornea. He said, it's all that works against a lifelong union of a man and woman in marriage. Now, this is a word that appears over and over in the New Testament. This was a, listen, this was a radical command. And so here they are preaching this message, saying, listen, uh, you, you need to be uh, self-sacrificing. You need to walk away from your selfish lusts. And they're preaching that message in a culture like Athens and Rome and Corinth where, the, listen, the, their public uh, display of selfishness and sexual morality, it, it was rampant. Raise your hand if you ever get discouraged when you watch the news. Can I just tell you this? The gospel flourished in the first century in Rome in a culture that was far greater sexual morality than we've ever thought or imagined here in, in our culture. And so here they are preaching gospel that's so countercultural. So he says that's what pornea is like, sexual morality. He says everything outside the boundaries of God's plan in the context of marriage. Uh, then he used the second word there, the word impurity. The word impurity describes something filthy inside and out. Now listen, when I dug a little deeper on the meaning, uh, th this is what it literally means in the original language. Let me just give you a warning. Uh, this is gross, but this is exactly what it means in the original language. The word impurity, describing something filthy inside and out, uh, it refers to the pus around a wound or a decaying body. You see, that's disgusting. That's the point. From God's perspective, when a person's engaged in sexual sin, that, that's how God sees it. And so do you understand this morning that from God's perspective, there is no such thing as casual or harmless sex. From God's perspective, he says, listen, it's as rancid as a decaying body. It's like a, an infection from a wound from God's perspective. And that's exactly what's going on in the culture that Paul is preaching on. So, so here, here's the gospel. Here they're preaching the gospel and saying, listen, you, you, can, you can live different. I know the culture around you says that's totally fine. Like they're not even shocked anymore. 
But God's called you to a higher and holier standard. Pastor Tim Keller describing the early church and how radical the message this was. Here's what he said. This is fascinating. He said the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians come along and gave practically no one their body and gave everyone their money. He says that, that's what it looks like to live different. And so the reality is if you're here this morning and you're giving others your body and not being generous with your resources, then, then despite what you profess to be, you're living like a pagan according to this passage. And if a person is sexually active outside the context of marriage, then they need to take into account and evaluate their life and their decisions, not by the culture, but by the standard of God's word in verse 2. And he describes it so clearly, so clearly, over and over and over. Let me, let me just say this. If you think that homosexuality is a bigger problem in our churches than heterosexual sin, then you are incredibly naive. It is a rampant problem in our churches. Over and over, in God's standard, listen to me this morning, God's standard is not heterosexuality. God's standard is not virginity. God's standard, according to this passage, is purity. God's standard is holiness. And so guys, single guys, if you're pressuring a girl for sex, you need to be honest about the fact that you're selfish and you want what's best for you, not what's best for her, according to verses 2 and 3. And girls, if you find yourself in that situation and realize this person is not an imitator of God, like verse 1 says, they're not fit to lead your relationship spiritually, and therefore you need to drop them like third period French. Amen? <laughs> Someone here's a French teacher like, I'm, I'm not coming back. <laughs> you know what's interesting? Is when it comes to temptation... The Bible says, stand firm, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Except when it comes to temptation in the arena of sex. You know what it says? It doesn't say stand firm. You know what it says? Run. Flee. It's almost as if God knew us better than we knew ourselves. And so the opposite, he says, listen, if you're going to model a lifestyle of love, it's self-sacrificing. Verse 2. And the opposite of that is selfishness. Verse 3, you've got something that I want and I have to have it, even though that God says that's not what's best for you, it's what's best for me. And he begins to describe exactly what that looks like. He goes on and says, listen, but lust is not just contained in the arena of, of sexuality. He says, listen, lust goes so far beyond that. It goes into greed. And so in verse 5, he begins to describe this greed as idolatry. You say, what does sexual morality and greed, how do those all fit under the same umbrella of lust? J.B. Phillips, the great Bible teacher, said this. He said, here's how they all fit together. He said, they're all contained with this thought, the itch to get your hands on what belongs to other people. He said, that's exactly, and listen, at the end of the day, what does God call it? God says it's selfish. It's a person wanting what doesn't belong to them at the expense of they want what's best for them, even if God says it's not best for you. What does love do? Love self-sacrifices. Love says, yes, I have a desire for money or you know, all these kinds of physical appetites, but at the end of the day, I want what's best for you, so I'm willing to self-sacrifice on your behalf. Why? Because that's what it looks like to be an imitator of God. Walk in love. Second lifestyle, he says, number one is walk in biblical love. 
not hallmark love, not, not cultural love, and biblical love, self-sacrificing. Number two, he says, if I'm going to be an imitator of God, I've got to uh, do it with a lifestyle that pushes back the darkness. Pushes back the darkness. And so the first thing he says here, I want you to walk, verse 2, how? In love. And then in verse 8, he says, but now you're light of the world. Walk as children of the light. And so if you wonder, like, how do you break down a passage? It's real simple. You know what I did when I put together this outline? He says, be imitators of God. Verse 1, I wrote command. And then he said three times in the next verses, walk this way. Walk this way. Walk this way. As a matter of fact, I originally titled the message, Walk This Way. Do you guys remember that song from Aerosmith? Right? Like, listen, I don't want to be legalistic, but if you don't like Aerosmith, you're not going to heaven. I just want to acknowledge that, all right? And I told Kyle, worship pastor, I said, hey, I think this is a great title. He's like, walk this way. You know how worship pastors are. Like, remember with Run DMC? Anyway, but that's not my notes. That was from God. I'm sorry. But then I looked up the lyrics and I went, oh, my word. We, I cannot even title it that way. But I will reference the song in church. I just so right? So he says, I don't know what I'm talking about. He says, walk, walk in love, walk in light. So I circled walk the second time. Then a third time he says, walk. And there's a third, there's a third point in the message. Just get your head right. Some of you are looking, but I'm just going to write that down so we can leave early. All right? So listen. He says, walk. Secondly, in verse 8, walk as children of light. Walk with a lifestyle that pushes back darkness. Now, this time of the year, this weekend particularly, proves that we live in a dark world. And some of you are thinking he's talking about Halloween, and I'm not. Listen, I'm talking about candy corn. <laughs> Anyone who sells wax to children and calls it candy is dark and wicked. The only person who is more evil is the person who came up with uh, those wax pumpkins that are candy corn molded into pumpkins. They don't taste anything like pumpkins. You know what they taste like? Wax. <laughs> so we live in a dark world filled with candy corn and egg salad and run DMC. <laughs> We're getting off the rails, aren't we? Like it's getting, I can feel it. And in the darkness of a sin-filled world, I'm like real sin, not exile, real sin. You know what the easiest thing to do as a Christian? It's to hide from the darkness in Christian subcultures. Here's the problem. He says, I want you to go out and invade the darkness. I don't want you to hide from it because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I don't want you to hide from it because no weapon formed against you shall prosper. I don't want you to hide from it. I want you to invade the darkness. Let me share something interesting, interesting that I read this week. Because it was written in 1970 by a missionary named e. Stanley Jones. And here's what he said. They asked him what the number one problem of the church was. He said, I think the number one problem was, is irrelevance. Now, when we think of relevance, we think of making it contemporary. And, you know, no, no, no. He said, listen, in other words, people look at the church and our lifestyle is not different. And we're, we're not making a difference in the culture. We're not invading darkness. And so people look at the church and go, it's irrelevant. It doesn't, it doesn't even make a difference. And he said, the problem is this. We're preaching a message and telling people that we can make a difference with the gospel. The church isn't. 
And so what happens is this, is that some churches say, you know what, we can't fight against it, so we're just going to become more like the culture, and hopefully we can attract a bigger crowd. Some churches go to the opposite spectrum, and so they're just like this angry activism where they're not trying to reach the culture, they're mad at the culture. You notice that? And he says, no, 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 listen, you engage the culture. You don't hide from the darkness, you invade the darkness. Now, I just want to tell you, that, how does that happen? Well, it's going to be right in the text. The answer is always in the text. But let me tell you how it's not going to happen. And some of you are going to get mad. And listen, that's not my heart this morning, but I do want to say this. The pushing back of the darkness was never meant to be accomplished by politics, but by spirit-filled, salt-and-light Christians living and engaging in the culture around them. That's how it's supposed to happen. You've heard me say this over and over. Uh, the greatest distraction to the gospel in the American church uh, is politics. And so every now and then I make a little joke about it, but other than that, we don't, we don't talk about it because my hope is not in one who rides a donkey or an elephant. My hope is in the one who will come back riding a white horse regardless of who's in the White House. Amen? And so that's what, that, that's what he's calling us towards. He's saying, listen, you can't retreat in Christian subcultures. You can't just angry activism or you know, political. You know, what, no, 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 no. He says it's by spirit-filled Christians engaging the people around them and loving them consistently like Christ loves. Now, you, you know that, listen, if you've heard me teach, you know that I, I always want to know, like, okay, what does that look like practically? Like, what does that look like practically? Well, he tells us, he says, here's one thing you do, here's one thing you don't. The one thing you do uh, is found in verse 9. What's he say? Or go back to the end of verse 8. He says, walk as children of light. Okay, what does that look like? For the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because these are Spirit-filled Christians producing the fruit of the Spirit. What's it look like? It's all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And so he, he says, listen, if you want to live countercultural, it's not about angry activism. It's not about retreating into Christian subcultures. It's not about just becoming weird and trying to say that you're different for Christ. He says, this is what it looks like in a wicked culture. This is what invades the darkness of that culture. He lists three things. One is goodness. You see, what does that mean? It's a broad term for behavior that benefits others as head of one's self. You see, that sounds like love. Exactly. Can I just tell you that we live in an unloving world? We live in a selfish, self-centered, unloving world. And if you want to make a difference, it's not going to be holding up a placard. You'll make a difference but, or a point, but you won't make a difference. If you want to make a difference, love people who are far from God. Love people like Christ loved people. And let the light of Jesus Christ dispel the darkness. It's not your job to dispel darkness in anyone else's life. That's the work of the Spirit of God. So he says goodness. He's, what else does he list there? Righteousness. What's that? It's conformity to God's standards. Uh, this is a commitment to personal holiness. You see, that sounds a lot like legalism. Listen, uh, holiness is taking serious what God commands, legalism is adding to what God commands. It's just, it's just a commitment to personal holiness. That's different in the culture we live in that says do whatever you want. As long as it's not hurting anyone else, do whatever you want. And so righteousness is conforming to God's standards. And the third thing listed there is truth. This is a person who speaks truth and lives truth. We call that integrity. I love Chuck Swindoll's definition of integrity. He says this, integrity is who you are when no one is watching but God. You want to make a difference in a dark culture? Then be a person who loves people who are still in the darkness. 
Be a person that conforms to God's righteous standards, even if it's not popular in the culture. Be a person of of deep, consistent integrity. That's how you invade the darkness. Robert Louis Stevenson, the great author, when he was a young child, he was sick most of the time. He couldn't go out and play like other little kids, and so he spent a lot of time just, just looking out the window. And so uh, one day his caretaker walked by and saw him looking very intently out the window, and there was a man coming down the street uh, lighting the gas lamps on his street. And his nurse said, what, what are you doing so serious? Here's what he said. He said, I'm watching the man knock holes in the darkness. Can I tell you that's exactly what God has called us to? To be the people of God in a dark culture. Listen, I know how dark it's getting out there. I know how discouraging it is. But can I just tell you this? Light shines the brightest in the darkest places. It gets noticed the best in the deepest, darkest places. And so you and I are not called to retreat. We're not called of angry activism. You and I are called to love people in such a way that knocks holes in the darkness. It's when the world is at its worst is when the people of God should be at their best. And listen, it, it would be easy just to retreat. I mean, listen, we, we've made it easy for people. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. Listen, we've got Christian sports leagues and Christian Cub Scouts and Christian schools and Christian Blue Pages. and all that. So, I mean, we, we, we have an opportunity if we want. We don't have to ever encounter lost people. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. But listen, we're not darkness avoiders. We're darkness invaders is exactly. So he says, verse 9, he says, you engage the culture. What does that look like? Uh, He begins to describe these things in verse 9. And he says, but then here's some things you don't do. Verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Let me make this as simple as I can. Listen, God has never called you to engage in sinful patterns of living to build relationships to win people to Christ. Well, I know I probably shouldn't get drunk, but my, you know, trying to witness some of those guys, and they were down there getting drunk, and people listen better when they're drunk, and so I just, I don't know, right? Jesus, all the time, was building relationships, but never engaged uh, in their lifestyle. Listen, I'm just going to acknowledge this morning, that's incredibly difficult. And the phrase we use in churches is to be in the world, but not of the world, and so let me give you some, some boundaries here to help you navigate that. Uh, this morning, uh, here are just kind of three principles of how you're going to live in the world, but not, don't let the world and its culture taint you. Uh, ba- boundary number one is, remember this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good character. You don't cut off non-Christian friends, but your deepest, deepest friendship should be with other believers. Why? Because if I'm sharing my, my, the deepest friendships I have with non-believers, then the, the verse says, do not be deceived Bad company corrupts good character. Boundary number two, serve people with needs uh, regardless of their beliefs. Listen, if you're not willing to serve people who disagree with you, if you're not willing to love people who vote differently than you do, if you're not willing to come alongside and and serve people who have different, you know, whatever the case is, you're a Pharisee. You're a Pharisee. So we don't cut ourselves off from those people like they were doing in the church at Corinth. I don't have time to get into that. And the third thing is this. Be, be on mission. Live on mission. Listen, friendship evangelism requires both. It requires building relationships and sharing Christ. And so he says, walk, number one, 
in love, verse 2. Number three, walk in light. Don't avoid the darkness. Invade the darkness. Number three, walk in wisdom. Number three, lifestyle of wisdom. I'm just going to hit this quickly because we're almost out of time. Look at verse 15. See that you walk. There's the third walk, and so that's how I outline the passage. See that you walk circumspectly, uh, not as fools, but as wise. And so, I, like, what, what, does that, what does that look like, right? Like, what does it look like? Listen, the answer is in the text. And so what does that look like? He says two ways we walk wisely. Number one, uh, you walk wisely, you live with intentionality. You say, where's that at? Verse 16. What's verse 16 say? Redeem the time because the days are evil. What does that mean? It means you will never make a difference for Christ by accident. That in order to be a disciple and make disciples, there is a disciplined pursuit of those things. It does not happen by accident, and it does not happen by osmosis. And if you're not intentional about becoming a disciple... Which, by the way, that's the word the Bible uses. The Bible doesn't use the word Christian. Matter of fact, when it used the word Christian, it was used in a negative sense. It used the word disciple. That doesn't happen by accident. And if you're not intentional about doing the things that would cause you to become a disciple and making disciples as you go, then you will find yourself just doing things that don't make a difference in eternity. Wasting your life on temporal pursuits. That's what he means. Redeem the time. Why? Because the days are evil. They're short. Live with purpose. Live with intentionality. That's how a wise person walks. Secondly, a wise person uh, lives under the control of the Holy Spirit. Where's that at? Verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine. Let me, let me just make a comment right here. And I don't even have time to go into this. That's a whole another sermon. Do not argue with me that drunkenness is not a sin. Over and over and over and over in the Bible, it describes drunkenness as sinful behavior. I don't care what the culture around you says. The scripture calls it sinful behavior. Behavior, and you have to be honest about the fact that you can't define drunkenness. Am I drunk when I can't speak? Am I drunk when I decisions are those kinds of things? And so, over and over, the Bible gives listen, it's hard to argue that the Bible calls having a drink is sinful. And I know some of you wish that it did, and some of you are glad that it doesn't, and some of you are totally ignorant of the Bible, you're just doing whatever you want to do. That's, that's just the facts. But the reality is this listen, when the Bible speaks of it, it's always almost in the context of of a warning always saying be careful be careful and so what's he saying there in verse 18 he says don't live under the control of alcohol all right now you can live under the control of lots of other things as well it's just he's, he's making a contrast this is not a passage about alcohol he's making a contrast he says don't be controlled by wine but instead be controlled by the spirit that's the contrast he makes there and so what does it mean to be controlled by the Spirit? It's the same thing we say being filled with the Spirit. And listen, we make this as simple, as simple as I know how for the sake of time and clarity. Listen, when I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm choosing to yield to the Holy Spirit instead of yielding to my sinful flesh and deceptive emotions. I'm renewing my mind around the Word of God and the Spirit of God. I'm yielded to all those things uh, this morning. Living under the control of the Spirit is a wise way to live. Let me tell you the recipe for every bad decision you'll ever make in your life. Here's what it sounds like. Well, I just felt. He says, don't live under the control of how you feel. Live under the control of the Spirit. 
You say, what does it look like to live under the control of the Spirit? How do I know if that's happening in my life? We're almost done. How do I know? The text tells us. He gives three ways you know if you're living by the Spirit. Three evidences. Verses 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. If you're not a person who likes to worship, if worship has not ever come out of your mouth, you, you, you can't convince me you're living a Spirit-filled life. That's what the text says. Number one, I like worship. Number two, giving thanks always for all things. Listen, a spiritual person, a spirit-filled person is a grateful person. And number three, submitting to one another in the fear of God. If you always have to have your way, never deferring to anyone else, you're not living the spirit-filled life. Verse 18 says, live spirit-filled. What's it look like? Verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. That's how you know if it's happening. We live in a broken world. Desperately needs our influence and our witness. But they will never listen to our message if they don't see it consistently in our lives. Never. And so let's love people who don't deserve it. Who don't respond well. Let's knock holes in the darkness, not just hide from it. And let's invest our lives in the things that make a difference in eternity instead of wasting them on things that are temporal. Because in the words of the great missionary C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask you the questions that the text asks this morning. When you look at your life, When you look at the consistent lifestyle that you're living out as a witness to the dark culture around us, is it a lifestyle of biblical love where you self-sacrifice for what's better for the other person? Where you want what God wants for them, not what you just simply want for yourself. Or do you find yourself trying to manipulate people and situations to get what you want? That's not love. That's lust. When you look at your lifestyle this morning... say with integrity that your life and the way that you live it is knocking holes in the darkness. Or have you just kind of just kind of got discouraged and started to retreat within the safety of Christian circles? Or does your life not look any different than those who don't know Christ? There's no distinction between their life and yours. Are you living a lifestyle of wisdom? Are you disciplining your life to become a disciple? Are you memorizing scripture? Are you in the word? Do you have a quiet time? Are you allowing other things 
alcohol, drugs, what, 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 are you allowing other things to control your behavior instead of letting the Spirit guide you, being under His control? My guess is here this morning, in a text this challenging, there are people whose lives do not line up consistently with this standard. Can I just tell you, if that's you this morning, then grace, not guilt, is what you need. And if you'll confess that to the Lord, and if you have a desire to turn from that, repent of that, listen, God's grace will wash over you this morning. You can be completely forgiven and walk out of here whole and forgiven in Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning, you say, that, that's what I need, that's me, that's me, that's me. Pray for me this morning. Would you just raise your hand and say, that's me. That's me. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Father, I pray as Christians in a dark culture, God, that we would live in such a way that brings glory to the Father. And that we would live in such a way not to get ourselves noticed, but to get Jesus noticed. Father, help us to not waste our life on things that won't matter a hundred years from now. Help us to love people selflessly. Help us not to retreat from the darkness, but to invade it. And whatever victories are won, we'll give you all the credit. Because it's your grace that changes us. It's your grace that sustains us. So we say thank you in the name of Jesus Christ.